good morning to you again, and Happy New Year. You might notice on the screen that what you're not seeing is the Songs of Zion sermon series that we've been going through for a while now, and that we are not stopping. We're, we're pausing it, and the reason why we're pausing it is because, well, number one, <laughs> I just... I thought, I thought my daughter would be here by now, so I hadn't, I'll be honest, I hadn't entirely expected to preach this morning, but, but I had planned that if I did, and this was actually at the recommendation of the elders and with, with their encouragement, it was their idea that, um, that, that during this time where we're expected to be greeting a new baby very soon, that for the next month or two, for the times that I'm in the pulpit, it would be best for me to, as it were, uh, do a sermon review. Uh, that is, you, you'll know that, many of you will know that a year or two ago, I finished preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And so what I'm going to do during our baby time, new parents time, all of that, is, is that for often as I am in the pulpit, during the next couple of months, I'm going to be doing, as it were, a beatitude review with you to start off the new year. I'll be taking some old sermon material and you might say revamping it or uh, re, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, re- repackaging it. Uh, not to say something different really necessarily, but just uh, in accordance with how my own maybe preaching style has changed and, and in the course of, say, pastoral counseling and knowing kind of what's going on in our body where certain things uh, would best be addressed by the text that we're in. And so uh, uh, you might say uh, it's, it's a, a beatitude review that we'll be focusing on for the next few weeks. By way of encouragement and maybe a tiny bit of self-defense, uh, if you read through the four Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus often reused his own material. So in, in so doing, I, I'd like to think that I'm uh, uh, taking the example of Jesus and uh, let's be honest, most of you have forgotten what I said when we were in Matthew 5 years ago. So, amen. <laughs> yeah, and the music director said amen. So this is the start. What we, what we will be reading in Matthew chapter 5 is the start of a sermon from Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Because, well, let's go there now. Verse 1 tells us, Seeing the crowds, he that is Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. Verse 1 of chapter 5 tells us that Jesus goes up on the mountain, he sits down with his disciples, and he starts teaching them. In the Bible, mountains are really important. Teaching from a mountain, and especially speaking of blessings to come, parallels Moses on Mount Sinai, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Except Jesus isn't standing on the mountain receiving words. He's sitting on the mountain declaring them. And and there's also, by the way, a kingship picture, I think, here, that Jesus is sitting down, and He's the one doing the teaching. What Jesus is doing here is acting, if you like, as as the new Moses, giving the new law. It's not really a new law at all, though. Just just so you know, each one of the Beatitudes uh, is an echo of some kind of Old Testament idea or Old Testament commandment. In fact, meek shall inherit the earth is pretty much right out of one of the Psalms. But it is all of these elements that 
that Jesus is echoing in the Old Testament and He's giving them greater clarity. For instance, our text this morning is the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is echoing Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Right Now if you just stop there, what we've got so far is a picture of an absolutely unattainable heaven, an unreachable God, high, holy, inhabits eternity. Where else does He dwell? Also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive, that this is God's objective in this, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. The one who is high and lifted up dwells in the high and holy place who owns all the kingdom of heaven. Where does he live? Whom could he ever call his neighbor? Answer, I dwell also with him who is of a lowly and contrite spirit. Why? What's the purpose? To revive their hearts. All the way back in Isaiah, God was telling his people, I'm going to come down. I'm going to find my troubled and spiritually dead people and bring them back to life. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, you can see some parallels in Old Testament law. It certainly did provide a picture of, if you like, what the the Christian community under the Lordship of Jesus was to look like. But notice this is different. Moses, so the, the, the new Moses is not up on the mountain by himself. We're specifically told his disciples came to him, came with him. And this, this God, this Son of God, speaks from a mountain, but not from, a, from an unreachable cloud. He speaks face to face with his people. So the words are not given, the Beatitudes are not given, the Sermon of the, on the Mount is not given as a, uh, a word of discouragement. Some commentators and some preachers, some theologians, see the Sermon on the Mount as just a way to say, like, uh, the, the whole purpose of it is to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, I can't do any of that, and then turn to Christ. Okay? And that's part of it. That's, that's part of it. It's part of the function of biblical commands. Uh, biblical commands is what, what we call the law, broadly speaking. Part of the purpose of God's commands in Scripture, wherever they show up, Old or New Testament, is that, you will re- is that you will read them and you will realize your own inadequacy at keeping them. Yes and amen. But the law of God is not just a oh, sort of a, like a bait and switch where he says, do this. <laughs> just kidding. You can't. <laughs> I was just messing with you. Rather, he says, do this. And when you say, I can't, this is impossible. I'm a failure. I need a Savior. He says, you have one. Jesus Christ. And now, Christian, you are transformed. You have received the Holy Spirit. Okay. So what do I do now? Well, go back to step one. The, the do this. I've already told you what life in my kingdom looks like. Go and pursue it with a ferocity that will make hell nervous. And so living out the Sermon on the Mount does absolutely, without question or qualification, require the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not a bait and switch. Jesus means for us to hear these words and to pursue them and love them with all vigor. 
So he begins his sermon with blessing. The opening words, often referred to as the Beatitudes, and no, that's not meant to communicate these are the attitudes you need to have to be a Christian. There's some truth to that, but to speak of these as attitudes is only perhaps part of the picture, and it's just not in me to go to that level of cheese on you. They're called, they're called, yes, they're called the Beatitudes because they bring blessing. It's, the, it, it's, it's because they all start with blessed are, are those, blessed are they. It's the, it's the same root word from which we get the word benediction. What is the benediction that happens at the end of the service? It is a blessing. Well, okay, what exactly is a blessing? I'm so glad you asked. There are a, a few things I want to look at concerning blessing this morning and what it means to be blessed. Um, and so let's start there. The easiest way, to, the easiest way you, and you might have heard this before, that if somebody's trying to describe, you know, what, blessed are they, what does that mean? The, the sort of kind of baseline, uh, uh, most accessible way to get on board with the word that I've seen uh, is happy. Some people translate it happy. Okay, so happy are those. That's a good start, okay? But the word has a distinct weight to it that pushes it further than that. One commentator defines it as the experience of divine favor, which, okay, that's, that's a good deal maybe on, on the other end. I, I feel like I need some help maybe totally locking into what divine favor means. If I could offer you a definition, I would say that to be blessed means to have a heart set at peace. We've got some of the highest anxiety numbers in the world right now. Anxiety and depression higher than they've ever been. What's happening? People are longing for blessing. They're longing to be at peace and contented. In other words, to be blessed is to relocate back to Eden. It's to be, you might say, full of God, full of his peace. So to, so to be clear, though, blessing is not just the removal of anxiety. I don't want to distill it down to, and just say it's just that. Blessing, especially in, in the Old Testament, no question, was always about receiving something. Blessing was receiving victory or resources or God's presence or good harvest or children. All these things are, are, are identified as blessings uh, in, the, in the Bible. And so blessing includes the satisfaction of receiving blessing from God, gift from God. But notice the Beatitudes are saying that the people described here are already blessed, right? Blessed are those who. But the categories are weird, aren't they? I mean, who wants to be poor (laughs) in spirit or otherwise? Who wants to mourn? Who wants to know hunger or thirst? Who wants to be persecuted for heaven's sake? You're supposed to feel a bit, of a, a bit of a paradox here. You're supposed to be unsettled a bit. These things don't sound like gifts. They sound like trials. That things that Jesus chooses to call blessed in the Beatitudes are not the things that you and I might choose. And that's because what Jesus gives us here is what you might call the most fundamental idea of what blessing really is. You see, since Adam and Eve in the garden... The world has been under the opposite of a blessing, namely a curse. Not a benediction, but a malediction. Because Adam and Eve sought blessing apart from God. To be their own God. To build their own kingdom apart from His. To be a better good than the good that God had called them to be. And it ended up killing them. 
And because sin comes into the world, the world itself now groans under a curse, a devilish, sure, let's bring it all in, a, a, a devilish sin-bringing, anxiety-inducing, depression-spreading, heart-wrenching, deeply painful curse. And just like in the old stories, the king returns to break the curse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus starts here because it is most fundamental. Fundamental to our, if you like, our, our membership in this kingdom He says that the poor in spirit are those to whom this kingdom belongs. Not that God ceases to own it or transfers all the ownership to us, but rather that we become citizens within it. It's really as simple as as someone saying, I'm blessed to be an American citizen, for America is my home. Now, if someone said America is my home or my country or my land, we wouldn't assume that they mean America is mine and it's not anybody else's. We'd know that by saying America is my home, they're saying as a citizen, I have a share in this place. So when Jesus says the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, he doesn't mean it ceases to belong to his father. He means that only the poor in spirit are the ones who have a share in it. The ones who are citizens in it. So then it becomes really clear that we want to know what it means to be poor in spirit. Because the thing about the kingdom of God is that it's coming and it's spreading. And Jesus means to conquer the world. And so we have every vested interest in being citizens of this kingdom. So let's start with this word poor. The word doesn't... uh, I mean, by itself, the word doesn't have to mean poor in possessions, although it can. I mean, in Matthew 19, Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Well, because the earthly kingdom they've built looks so very enticing and sufficient. And that's probably why in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 20, do I have that one in there? I think I do. Yeah, thank you. We simply have poor rather than poor in spirit. Okay? Lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That sounds very familiar. Yes, it's because Jesus recycled his own material. And so here we see Jesus recycling the same material, but making a slightly different point with a slightly different emphasis. And uh, this, this pattern is on display for you today. <laughs> and so this Greek word for poor, the verb, it's, it's interesting, the it's, it's a, uh, the verbal form of it literally means to crouch down. Blessed are the, 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 the crouching needy ones. That's the idea. It's, it's the posture of a beggar. It's why historically, part of Christian worship has been to kneel in prayer. The, wor- the word doesn't always have material poverty in view, though that can certainly be part of it. He's mainly, Jesus is mainly addressing this, what I would call this broader category of spiritual poverty. Spiritual bankruptcy, if you like. Which is a lot harder to acknowledge than material impoverishment. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Being poor in spirit is about coming to Jesus with nothing in our hands except the sin that made his death necessary. 
And so perhaps at this point, we begin to see why Jesus begins his sermon with these words, that our fundamental identity in God's kingdom, our starting place, is that we come with nothing. In other words, an easy summary of this sermon would be the importance of humility given by God. The importance of humility, which is a really hard thing to have, by the way, right? So, so you might pray for it, you might long for it, saying, Lord, put my pride to death. And then the moment you think you have it, well, isn't that kind of prideful to start saying you have humility? <laughs> and so you feel almost stuck. I remember uh, my pastor and mentor, Mike Sherritt, being asked by a, a, a publisher that they called him and asked him to write a book on humility. I mean, I'm not making that up. I know that's the joke. Like, I'm so humble, I wrote a book on humility. All of you should buy it and read it. But he literally was asked to write the book on humility. And so there's a spiritual struggle for you. The poor in spirit, though, the poor in spirit do come with something. I know I said a moment ago they come with empty hands. They come with their sin, some sense of it. If you're poor in spirit, if you know your own spiritual poverty, if you know how much your sin guides you, how much, how much you can confess with sincerity the words in our prayer of confession earlier, that I'm groaning in my weakness. If you're poor in spirit and you know your spiritual poverty, if someone says to you, Oh, sorry, if you are poor in spirit, then you do have a sense of your own spiritual poverty. If someone says to you, I have nothing, can you help me? You don't lecture them on the nature of poverty and need. They probably have that bit figured out. Some of you might have heard the story of G.K. Chesterton when he, uh, in 1908, was interviewed by the London Times, along with several other authors and philosophers, to offer an answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton responded by writing, Dear Sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. <laughs> Chesterton. It was the whole letter. That's a, good, that's a good sense of what it means to be poor in spirit. Coming to Jesus with nothing in our hands except my sin that made His death necessary. And being conscious of that, starting there, right? Now, yeah, I'm gonna, uh, by starting there, I don't just mean starting there the day of your conversion. Okay? yes. That's true. You do. You must, you must start there in terms of coming to Christ. And, and becoming a Christian means starting there with the knowledge of your sin. But I'm, I'm actually talking about starting there every morning. Most people do not believe that their sin is one of the main contributing factors to their problems. This is why, this is why we believe in the doctrine of unconditional election. Because if salvation is contingent on you being humble enough and poor in spirit enough for you to work that up in yourself, then you're done for. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, is an attitude of mind and heart that's opposed to everything in my flesh. So you see, here's what I'm trying to say. Even your consciousness of your own need is a gift from God. It comes to you by hearing His Word. This is why, yeah, I mean, this is why if, if you don't have a sense of the doctrine of election, then you would have to acknowledge that the reason why you came to Jesus is at least a little bit because of something in you. Something that made you more humble or more discerning or more spiritually perceptive than others. No, no. Even my awareness of my need, 
is a gift that is brought about when I hear about it in Scripture, in the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by God's own words, I see my need. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Right? So this is a, a whole different conversation, but you know why? Some, some, sometimes people have wondered, why don't Presbyterians imitate the, um, the, the revivalistic or, or Baptist practice of, of having altar calls? And one, at least one answer is like what most of us don't, what most of us need is not to come up here and cry about it. It's just to go home and live it, right? And so, so yeah, you, you, could, you could be up here and cry every morning if you like. That is not what atones for your sin. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And we just have to admit that that, that attitude of heart is, is fundamentally opposed to our flesh. We hate asking for help. We hate asking for help. You hate asking for help. Stop it. Call and ask for help. Sorry, now I'm, now I'm just kidding. This is not even in my notes. I'm just, I just have this deep sense of like, don't, don't call when things are like so bad, but, but call when you first realize, hey, we need help. Get in touch with your elders or your pastor. <laughs> but most people hate being in need and we hate asking for help. Marissa knows if I'm working on some kind of project at the house, I hate asking for help. But I need to. Some of the marks on the wall bear, bear out the reality that I need to ask for help. See that right there is where he tried and failed. And that right there is where he tried a second time. You see that straight line? That's when he called Blair Bice. <laughs> the only exception to this rule that we hate asking for help is that is the kind of opposite struggle, which is some people love being so outwardly needy because it gets them attention or sympathy that they crave. So we do want to distinguish from being poor in spirit from appearing sort of needy and poor for the sake of, of being the center of attention. That, so what I'm trying to, trying to give you a picture of is like constantly spinning stories of woe or sadness or misery about my terrible life or my awful husband or my nagging wife or my terrible kids or my horrible parents. So everyone will feel bad for me and I will daily put my martyrdom on display because I'm so, so poor in spirit. And just as an aside, so, so like how to kind of diagnose that in yourself, if you find yourself trying to turn every conversation into an opportunity to trash somebody, to trash your husband or your wife or to embarrass them or humiliate them, you need serious help immediately. I'm not joking. You are not okay. And your house is not okay. But my point is that being poor in spirit is not being attention-grabbing in spirit. Another way this manifests, I think, is again, uh, if, if, if you go around telling everybody what a worm you are, right? I'm such a worm. I'm such a worm. I'm such a horrible, wretched sinner. I'm so broken. Please pay attention to how broken I am. And if I keep repeating that, nobody will ever expect any change from me. So that I don't have to go to war with my sin. Because, you know, I'm just so broken. 
So that's, that's just as repugnant and sinful as, as a man that talks over everyone all the time because he always needs to be heard. But this is a time of year where we try to sort ourselves out, right? I'm given to understand it's, it's when the gyms make all of their money for the year because <laughs> everyone buys their uh, memberships and they uh, forget to cancel. But this is a time of year where we're trying to set some things right, to set right what is out of joint or to maybe cut some new paths. And I'm not going to say that's bad. Human beings are capable of, of change, real change. But you will not change simply because you flip the calendar. Oh, it's January now. I am suddenly endowed with superpowers that I did not have last month. No. You know, the, the new year, new me mantra, there's just there's no power in that. Being poor in spirit, though, is not resigning yourself to your present condition and saying, well, it's not like it's going to get any better. No, the one who is poor in spirit says, I long to be substantively changed. I know, however, that I do not have that power myself to just fix all my problems and be okay. I need the mercy of God. I need the help of God. I need to appear before God with His people. I need my family. I need my church. I need my elders. I need the Word of God. I need prayer. I need the Lord Jesus. You see, the poor in spirit have a way of talking about themselves, internal monologue. It goes something like, Lord, left to myself, I will live in my own strength, believe I'm rich in spirit, believe I'm not terribly needy in spirit, believe I'm doing okay, and I will wreck everything. I mean, do you pray that way? You wake up in the morning and say, Lord, left to myself, I will wreck my marriage. Lord, left to myself, I will wreck my, uh, my, my job or my vocation. Lord, left to myself, I will wreck the responsibilities that you have put in front of me. Or I will make idols of them. Left to myself, I will sink slower and slower into my own misery while exhausting every option for help except God and His Word and His people. But if we're honest, so many of us are either looking for the right kingdom on this earth or trying to build our own. Some people are looking for their kingdom through politics, for example, where you want to be on the, say, the political kingdom of the right because then you will look strong, or you want to be on the political kingdom of the left because then you'll look compassionate and warm, and you can lord that over everybody else. And when you try to hitch your wagon to godless projects, don't be surprised when you are then constantly occupied with how poor or low value or problematic or wrong side of history everybody else is. It will make you restless. And sometimes just miserable to be around (laughs) because you're desperately trying to find an earthly kingdom that's safe or to build your own. But blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom they're searching for is already here and it's still coming. Because they're already living in it. They see it growing. They see it moving. They're not afraid because they know it can't be stopped. Being poor in spirit is about coming to Jesus with nothing in our hands except the sin that made His death necessary. And the really sad part about the whole thing is we can still make even that contingent on our effort. Okay. 
Uh, I heard Pastor Brian say, I have to drum up enough humility in myself to be poor in spirit. That is not what he said. Wrong. He didn't say, blessed are those who bring upon themselves spiritual poverty. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, this is why the Beatitudes are, are weird. They are the exact opposite of what we would think of when, when left to ourselves, if we were to paint a picture of what blessing is. In fact, just for fun, I've written out a few modern-day Beatitudes that we might often believe, but we just don't realize it. So here you go. Blessed is the one who sees his candidate elected to office, because then he can finally live without fear. Blessed is the one who hates the candidate most worthy of hatred, because then someday everyone will know he was right all along. Blessed is the one who sees through all the politics to the core reality, to the shadowy workings of the true power brokers beneath it all, and he understands what it all really means because he gets to stand in judgment of the simple-minded. Blessed is the parent whose child is well-behaved all the time because then they know they're worthy of honor and peace. Blessed is the pastor who grows a really, really big church because many will come to Jesus because of his nice smile and winsomeness. Blessed is the one who dominates the conversation, talking about himself all the time, because everyone needs to know how important he is. Blessed is the one who's always miserable and makes sure everybody knows, because whoever stacks up the most pity wins. Blessed is the one who achieves all his educational goals, because now he has hard evidence that he is worth something to the world. Blessed is the man who keeps all his New Year's resolutions, because then he can finally believe he's strong enough. Now, some of the stuff I just, I just named are, are good things. Like, it, it's good to want godly rulers in your land. It, it's good to have education or resources or even well-behaved kids. Those are good things. And the Bible is quick to honor good things. It calls, for instance, the, the, the Bible calls young men to be strong, old men to be wise, young women to love their husbands and children well, older women to be reverent and steady, just to name a few things. But if you read texts like that from Proverbs or, or Titus, and you get a sense, okay, so it's not that those virtuous things don't matter in God's kingdom. They do matter. And where they are present, they are a blessing to you and to others. And in, in Jesus, you do not find the God who simply comes to, to condemn. You find if you read the whole gospel, you find the God who took on flesh in order to bear condemnation in your place. And so that's, that's how I want to conclude this morning, by telling you that the most obvious mark of the poor in spirit is that they are perfectly content to hear from God perfectly content. They are content as much as they know how to be. <laughs> to hear from God on God's terms. To receive His gifts on His terms. To receive salvation on His terms. You might remember earlier I told you that the, the word for poor, that the verbal form of it has to do with crouching. It's the position of the beggar. It is said that Martin Luther's dying words were, we're all beggars, that's the truth. And perhaps you've heard this old proverb, beggars can't be choosers. So it is with beggars like us. If you are trying to maintain all of the authority to choose your own way of salvation, you are not yet poor in spirit. You are, in fact, the opposite.
in this poverty of spirit that Jesus means to give you, you will find all of your wealth. It is in this poverty that we will find the very blessing of God. There we will find our hearts cry to be, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For this is the King who has endured all for us, that we might hear the sweet words of forgiveness. How can our hearts not be humble? And so perhaps it is, that's what's before you and I this morning. To pray, Lord, I know that pride is my driving sin. And pride is underneath a lot of my other sins. Pride is why I don't do X. Pride is why I do X. I mean, I'm, I'm giving you space there to fill in the blank. What, what things have been cropped up in your own heart as you've heard this this morning? The areas where pride keeps us from listening to God or from obeying God, for walking in His ways, for rejoicing in His words. And what is going to enable your heart to be humbled is not the try harder to be humbled, but it is a reminder, a refreshing of your memory, if you like, of who Jesus is and what He has done. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, that's poor in spirit. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In the name of Jesus. Amen.